not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But 
In Christ Jesus, we have freedom. We have deliverance. We have victory. So by the time we get to Romans chapter 8, what we're really talking about are the blessings of being in Christ. It's a capstone, if you will, a summary chapter that has in mind everything that's come before it in the first seven chapters. And this chapter seeks to let us know that in Christ Jesus, here are all of the magnificent blessings that are ours to enjoy. Now, we don't have the time this morning, unfortunately, to intricately dissect everything that this chapter says. But what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to work through it in survey fashion, and I'd like for us to just point out the seven blessings that are found in this chapter. There are seven blessings of being a Christian that are found in Romans chapter 8, and I want us to point each one of them out and say just a word or two about all of them. Let's start at the beginning. First of all, there's the blessing of no condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous righteousness or the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but rather walk according to the Spirit. I want you to notice with me that in this case, the word law basically means a rule of action. A rule of action. So in this chapter, the rule of, of the Spirit is contrasted with the rule of sin. Go back and study closely chapter 6 and chapter 7. Again, you'll see the contrast even more clearer, even more clearly, I should say. The rule of, the, of sin versus the rule of the Spirit. So when we're talking about the blessing or the state of no condemnation or non-condemnation in Romans chapter 8, Verses 1 to 4. The idea is that in sin we're defeated, Romans 5 and verse 12, Romans 6 and verse 23, but in Christ we have victory. And that's because Christ came and Christ provides for us what the law of Moses or any law in and of itself for that matter could not. And that is a permanent dealing with the issue of sin. And being able to stand before God in a state of, again, non-condemnation, which means we stand having been declared just and having been de declared acquitted from all of the charges that were levied against us because of the sin that we rightly committed. But I want you to notice the key to standing in a state of non-condemnation, the state of freedom, the state of being declared just, the emphasis here in these four verses is action. Paul uses the word walk. We're talking about those who walk not after or not according to the flesh, but rather who walk after or who walk according to the Spirit. We're talking about those who pattern their lives after the Spirit's law. Those who conform their will to the will of God. Those who follow the instruction that is given in the law or the rule of action that the Spirit has produced, the New Testament, the Gospel that we hold in our hands, we can say with joy and with gladness that we stand in a state of 
non-condemnation. That's the idea of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Those who follow the law of the Spirit, they stand in a state of non-condemnation. Look at the second blessing. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. This is the blessing of life. Again, in these verses, we have a contrast. You'll notice in Romans 8, verse 5 to 8, Paul contrasts those who are after the flesh who mind the things of the flesh, but those who are after the Spirit who mind the things of the Spirit. And notice how the language stays consistent, by the way, as we go throughout the different sections of this chapter. In the first section, we're talking about those who walk according to the flesh, or the law of the flesh, versus who walk according to the law of the Spirit. Now we're talking about those who mind the thing of the flesh versus those who mind the things of the Spirit. And listen to this, the word mind, it literally means to direct your attention in the direction of something. To point your attention towards something, that's the idea. So we're contrasting those who direct their attention toward the things of the flesh, carnal things, worldly, fleshly things. Versus those who direct their attention toward the things of the Spirit. Those things that are revealed of the Spirit. Those things that have to do with God. Spiritual things, if you will. And notice he describes the result. Those who are carnally minded, well, the result of that, verse 6, is death. But those who are spiritually minded, the result of that, life and peace. And then there's an explanation or a rationale. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The reason is that it's not subject to the law of God, neither that neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh, they cannot please God. What's the implication? The fleshly-minded person is unable to please God because he's not willing to submit himself to God's will. He can't please God because he's not willing to live in the way that God wants him to live. He is not following the law of the Spirit, verses 1 to 4, and so therefore he's not living in a state of non-condemnation. But then on the other hand, the one who directs his attention toward the things of God, verse 7, the opposite of that, those who subject and submit themselves willingly to the law of God, those who pattern their lives according to the law of the Spirit, verses 1 to 4, what's the result for them? Life and peace. Do you remember Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The abundant life is a real thing and it is a reality only for those who submit themselves to the will of God and who follow in the footsteps of the Savior. And as Paul will describe in verses that follow in Romans chapter 8, we're not talking just about an abundance in this life, here in this world. But we're talking about an abundance in that which is to come throughout eternity. We're talking about eternal life. Look at the next section. In Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 13, now Paul describes what we might say is ownership. Ownership. Listen to what he says. In verse 9, again, we're looking at contrast. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the 
those of you, he that raised the Christ from the dead will also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. So much of this small section. Notice, first of all, in verse 9, as Paul begins to talk about ownership, he connects ownership with the indwelling of the Spirit. Now, here's an important question to ask. When Paul says, uh, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if it's the case that the Spirit of God dwells in you, the question to ask is, why does the Spirit of God dwell in us? The how is seen, I think, clearly if you follow the logic of the first two sections. The person who submits themselves and follows the law of the Spirit in the first four verses. The person who is spiritually minded in the uh, verses 5 through verse 8, who submits themselves to the will of God. That's the person in whom the Spirit dwells. But why? The answer is ownership. Notice the end of verse number if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. What's the implication? If he does have the Spirit of Christ, meaning if the Spirit of Christ or God's Spirit does dwell in him, then what that means is what? He belongs to Christ. We're talking about ownership. Now, what's the result? Look what he says in verses 10 and following. He outlines a couple of things. First of all, we live for righteousness. He says, uh, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. I would direct your attention back to chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, which I would suggest is a perfect commentary in this passage. Paul says, likewise, reckon you yourselves also to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of a righteousness unto God, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin will not have dominion over your body. When Paul talks about in instruments, he's talking about body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, your ears. And what he's simply saying is, look, you're not living under the dominion of sin anymore, so you're not using your body in order to accomplish the things of sin. But rather, you are alive under God, so therefore use the body that God has given you for the purpose of bringing about and accomplishing things that are right. Righteous things, godly things, things on behalf of God. Well, in Romans chapter 8, then, in verse and verse number 10, the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's true that sin and its effects, its impact is seen in this world. And it's true that one day, unless the Lord returns, our, we're going to die, our body's going to return to, to the dust, and the spirit will go to God who gave it. The reality of sin is real. But it's also true that in Christ Jesus, we have the ability to use the body that God has given us. We have the ability to use the life that God has given us to His glory, His service. That's not the end. Look at the next verse in verse number 11. The Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Uh, if the Spirit, rather, that raised up Jesus from the dead wells in you, then Christ. 
you've been raised to Christ from the dead will also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Now, he may be talking about the same thing that we just discussed, going back to Romans 6, verses 11 to 13. The idea being that our body is going to be used for the service and righteousness of God. But he may also be pointing, as he'll discuss without question in verses to follow, he may also be pointing to eternal life. To the fact that at some point when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, you remember, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so we are used, our life is used for His glory now, but our life will be with Him in glory then, time to come. That may be the idea. Then look how he finishes the section. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Therefore, we're drawing a conclusion. We're looking back at what's just happened. Think about all of it in one piece. We stand in a state of no condemnation if it's the case that we pattern our lives after the law of the Spirit. We enjoy life and peace if it's the case that we submit ourselves to the will of God and we're spiritually minded. We belong to God. We are owned by God if it's the case that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so therefore, our, our life now is used for His service and His glory. And later in eternity, I will be with Him in glory. Now, with all of that being the case, therefore, we're debtors not to the flesh, but we're debtors to live after the Spirit. We put to death the things of the flesh. We live according to the Spirit because of the blessings that are going to be ours. Let's look at the next section. Time is escaping us quickly. Sonship. Verse 14 through verse 17. Sonship. Notice the word for at the beginning of the verse. Verse 14. It's the idea of because. Notice again how all of these sections come together. We're patterning, patterning, patterning our life after the Spirit's law. We're minding the things of the Spirit, directing our mind toward those things. The Spirit of God dwells and shows ownership, and now we are led by the Spirit, verse 14, which simply means we follow the direction that the Spirit has laid out for us in His law. We are led by the Spirit, and if we're led by the Spirit, then what does that mean? That means we're the sons or the children of God. Because you've not received the spirit of bondage again. Notice bondage again points us back to the reign of dominion of sin. We're not under that anymore, but rather you've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, The concept of adoption in the first century world is one that's quite interesting. It was a process whereby there were two things that were accomplished. Number one, a legal process whereby uh, the, uh, every tie that the person had with his blood father is completely terminated. And then the second part of the process is that he begins to build ties, legally speaking, toward the adopted father. And the result of that is that he becomes an heir and a beneficiary of all of the possessions and of all of the, the things that the adopted father has, just as if the adopted father was the blood father. I think it's very powerful and very encouraging to connect with this. Ephesians 1 verse 5 and Ephesians 5 verse 1, by the way. Ephesians 1 verse 5 tells us that we are adopted into the family of God by Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 5 verse 1 tells us that as children of God, then we are to imitate our father. 
But notice that Paul is describing this because it is a blessing. All previous ties have been severed. We no longer belong to the world. We no longer belong to sin. We're no longer under the reign of sin, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, but rather we belong to God. We are His children, and because we are His children then, verse 16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, and children and heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together with Him. Notice in verse number 16, we have again a courtroom scene's legal language. And the idea is something like this, that the Christian's obedience joins with the Spirit's instruction to prove that the Christian is God's child. We talked already as we worked through this chapter about the fact that we're conforming ourselves, patterning our life after the Spirit's law. We're directing our mind toward the things of the Spirit. And so therefore the Spirit of God dwells in us and shows ownership and we follow the direction of the Spirit. Now as we're doing all of that, then the instruction of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit has revealed, they stand on one hand and our life stands on the other hand and those two go together and they show as a living testimony because I'm doing all the things that the Spirit has asked me to do. Therefore, I belong to God. And the result of that, verse number 17 is that I am a joint heir of Christ. Now, that builds into this next section, verse 18 and 25. The blessing of glory. Notice the end of verse 17. He says, If so be that we suffer with him, that's suffering with Christ, we may be glorified together. That's being glorified with Christ. For I suppose, or I reckon, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It would be appropriate, I think, to connect to this 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And notice how the Apostle Paul in that chapter begins by describing his desire to be clothed with the spiritual body. That is, the body that is fit for eternity. His desire to go on and be with the Father in heaven... And then in verse 17 describe how when a person becomes a Christian, that they have been made a new creation, a, a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now back to Romans chapter 8, he's looking at the present suffering, the difficulty that we endure. And he says, listen, when we think about the difficulties of today and we compare them with the glory of eternity, really it's no comparison at all. He says, because the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation or for the revealing of the sons of God. Because the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same hope. Because the creature himself or itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails and pain together until now. And not only they, but we ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown in ourselves or within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by this hope. But uh, hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? It's a challenging, challenging, excuse me, challenging section to be sure. And that is evidenced simply by the fact that when we take the time to look at what uh, good brethren have said about this passage throughout the years, we'll notice that there are some differences and 
how we understand some of these words and some of, the, some of this terminology. The big question, and the important question, of course, is exactly what is it that Paul has in mind when he uses the word creature or the word creation? Some have looked at this and said that the word creature in verse 9, excuse me, in verse number 19 through verse number 21 is in reference to the church, the new creation of God. That verse number 22, then, the whole creation refers to all of mankind. And then in verse number 23, we ourselves refers perhaps to the apostles and the first fruits of the Spirit having to do with the miraculous manifestation or gift of the Spirit. I think a, a very solid case can be made for that. But it's also possible to look at this passage and say that Paul is not talking about the church, but rather he is talking about the whole creation, the created order. And when he says we ourselves, in verse number 23, he's talking about Christians. Let's talk about that just for a moment. First of all, if we were to look at it and say, well, this is talking about the created order, the creation, and, and Christians, then there's only two possibilities. Either it's talking about in a literal sense, or it's talking about in a figurative sense, a metaphor. If it's a literal sense, then look carefully at the language. What that means then is that we have to affirm that all of the elements of this world, like rocks and dirt and fruit and vegetables, that those things, that they all have a will, that inanimate objects have the ability to suffer and long for something, and that these inanimate objects are waiting for something. But then we would have to go to passages like the two we've looked at in previous weeks, Isaiah 65 and 2 Peter 3. Other passages, like what we find in the first few chapters of Genesis, and like John 16 through uh, John, excuse me, 13 through 17, and a number of other passages in God's Word, and we would have to we would have to change what they actually say. It's important to notice, by the way, that this is a what passage, not a how. All that the Apostle Paul is doing is is describing what the creation thinks and what it does and what it longs for, but it never describes or discusses how those things are to happen. But the other passages that we've looked at, again, like 2 Peter chapter 3, those passages, those are not simply what passages, but rather they are how passages. They talk to us about how things are going to unfold. But if it's the case that we're to take this literally, then also what we have to do is we have to have a passage somewhere in God's Word that would bring God from heaven to earth, and that passage is not going to be found in God's Word. So then by process of elimination, that leads us to the conclusion that either we're talking about the church or perhaps we're talking about creation, but if it's creation, then creation has simply been personified. It's a metaphor, and he figuratively represents the whole creation as longing for a time of deliverance. And the reason why he figuratively represents the whole creation as longing for a time of deliverance is because everything has been impacted by sin. Interestingly enough, this is something that isn't anything new. We see this kind of language, these kinds of metaphors, and these kinds of figurative descriptions throughout God's Word, particularly in the Old Testament, like Psalm 114. A number of times, the elements in the created order will be personified throughout the Old Testament in order to prove a point. Now, let's step back from this and ask ourselves, what is the point? The point is seen in verse 18, and then at the end of verse 23 through 25. 
And the point is this, that the current suffering is nothing in contrast with the future glory. He is talking about the fact, as, the, as he says at the end of verse 23, that the, he's talking about the redemption of our body, this hope that we have that at some point, though we will die if, if we live long, excuse me, though we will die unless the Lord returns first, that death will not be the end. Because since Jesus lives, we're going to live, and the Bible has promised that there is a resurrection that's coming, and so therefore, the Bible teaches in John chapter 5 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead will rise. That's the emphasis of the section. Glory is coming. It is a blessing that though we deal with death and the issues of death, death is not the end. That life is to come and that the blessing of life that belongs to the children of God, it belongs to, to God's people. Again, notice how they all of the sections connect together. Those who pattern their lives after the law of the Spirit. Those who submit themselves to the will of God. Those who, uh, the, in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Those who follow the direction of the Spirit of God. Verse 14. These are those who are going to enjoy what is described as the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, verse number 23. These are those who are going to describe the glory that will be revealed in us. That's the emphasis of the section. And we have to be very careful not to say any more than what the section or what the passage actually teaches. Let's look at the last couple. There's intercession. Intercession. Verse 26 and verse 27. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should praise. We ought, the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Interesting two verses, and we could spend so much time looking at them. But notice a couple of things. First of all, notice that we're talking not about something that the Holy Spirit does to us. That's an important point to know. We're not talking about something He does to us, but rather we're talking about something that He does for us. What is it that He does for us? What God describes is that in some way the Spirit intercedes, that He somehow helps us bear our load in those times in which we know not what or how we should pray. Difficult to say any more than that. It is something that Paul mentions by inspiration and it is intended to be for us a source of joy and comfort because it falls in line with the blessings that are described in this chapter. And then finally, we bring it all together. There's confidence. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Maybe some of my most favorite passages in all of this book. Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good, and then that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestined, them also he called, and whom he called, them also he justified, and whom he justified, them also he glorified. I want you to look at Romans 8 and verse 28 for a moment, and I want you to think about it in two different ways. First of all, I'd like for us to think about Romans 8 and verse 28 in light of the entirety of the book up to this point. Think about everything that Paul has described, beginning with the problem of sin, to God giving the solution to sin, 
to then explaining how all people can be part and tap into the solution of sin, and then the results of that being freedom from sin. Now, what Paul has described is in very uh, in a very summarized way is God's scheme or plan of redemption. He has described the way in which God makes men right in his sight. And all of this, it has nothing to do with anything that we have secured upon our own or by our own. But rather, it is all dependent upon the grace and upon the mercy of God in putting together this incredible divine plan and making it a reality. And so therefore, when we get to Romans 8 and verse 28, we can say we know that all things work together for good because we can look back and we can see everything that God has done for us. And so therefore, it's all going to work out to our benefit. But then second, I want you to look at it just in terms of what's happened in this chapter. We've had these blessings that have been described. We have a state of non-condemnation. We have life and peace. We have ownership. We have sonship. We have glory. We have intercession. Again, look at what God has done for us. Not just in light of the whole book, but in light only of what this chapter describes. And so therefore, Paul can say in Romans 8 and verse 28, we know it indicates confidence. And listen, confidence breeds joy. Confidence produces happiness. Confidence produces steadfastness and, and strength of faith and endurance. So whatever life throws at us, we can say, it may not be easy, it might be painful, but in the grand scheme of things, when we consider the big picture, we know that everything works together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And the reason, verse 29, verse 30, is because what God has done for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. That brings us then to verse 31 through verse 39. We won't have time to look at those verses this morning. But again, just like Romans 8, verse uh, 28 through 30, you have to look at 31 through 39 in two ways. You have to look at it in light of all of the book up to this point, and then second, in light of the chapter up to this point. He simply asked the question, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? Look at all of the wonderful things that God has done for us. Look at all of the things that God has provided for us that we can never provide for or secure for ourselves. When we step back and we contemplate the goodness of God on our behalf, how could we ever be intimidated? How could we ever be made anxious? How could we ever allow ourselves to worry and to be uh, uh, to worry and to be afraid of the things that are in this world and what might happen in the future? All we have to do is think about everything that God has done in the past and the present, and then we're assured of what He's promised to do in the future. And that brings us great comfort. It brings us great blessing. These are all results of being in Christ, of being made free from sin, of being those who are alive in the God and therefore have submitted themselves to His will and are dedicated, have dedicated their lives to His service and to His glory. Now, do you want to enjoy those blessings this morning? Are you a Christian? Have you left the shackles of sin behind? Are you serving God? Do you know what it is to enjoy life and to enjoy peace and to live in a state of non-condemnation? So that every night when you go to bed, you can close your eyes without worry, without fear, 
but rather in faith and in confidence and in joy and security. Do you know that? If not, why not? The Lord's invitation is offered this morning to those who may have a need to respond, perhaps to become a Christian. The Bible teaches that when a person is willing to believe in the deity of Jesus, confess their, uh, confess their faith and repent of their sin and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins, that God will add them to His body, to the body of Christ, to the church. And then life and peace and all the blessings that are elaborated in chapter 8 will be yours. Maybe this morning you're a Christian, but you've not been living faithfully. Maybe you've not been following the law of the Spirit. Maybe you've not been spiritually minded. Maybe you've not been following His direction and reflecting upon the greatness of God and the things that He's provided for us. Make it right. If we can help you, we invite you to come forward and let your need be known while together we stand.